Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So I want to share a message with you today entitled, Forgive Like Jesus. Forgive Like Jesus. This is the shortest book in the whole Bible, uh, which, which is literally only 335 words long. It was just a really, it was a one-page letter. The book of Philemon, uh, which is really just the letter of Philemon, is, is a one-page letter written to this friend of Paul's who had a church in his house, a wealthy man who became a believer, who was led to faith by, by Paul, and uh, then he had obviously a large home, and he started a church in his own house, and his faith and his love for people was known, uh, was known by Paul, it was known by, by all the people at that time, and, uh, and Paul writes him this, this really weighty letter, and you think, why? What could you say in 335 words that, that would be enough to to kind of end it there and, and, and not write more. You know, if you look at most of Paul's letters, uh, he, he really goes into depth with a lot of things. But sometimes there's a way of speaking truth where no more needs to be said. When you've said something well and you've said it poignantly and directly and in a way that is charged by the Holy Spirit, sometimes you just need one sentence or a, or a few paragraphs to really make the point. And so we can really cover this whole book um, in, in one session today, um, because this letter is so punchy and so heavy that it, the truth of it you know, means that nothing more needed to be said. Um, it's interesting that this being one of those prison letters of Paul, one of these letters he wrote while imprisoned, he's actually redefining freedom while sitting in prison. He's redefining what it means to truly be free in this world, to truly have the perspective of heaven, to truly not be bound up and, and, and embittered and, and, and struggling with all the difficulties of life, but to walk instead in health, in healthy relationships and, and, and in, in love and in the way of Jesus. He's redefining for all of us what it looks like to be a Christian, and he's doing it from prison. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of the freedom that we now have in Christ. The Bible speaks to all of us as believers, not under compulsion, not under the law, not as a command, but in love, as the motivation of love. As we really begin to experience God's love in our lives, it changes the way that we walk. This is what people don't understand about grace. They think that grace just means forgiveness. But grace doesn't just deal with the past. It deals with the present and the future. Grace, in fact, the book of Titus says, is what trains us. This, this grace of God that brought salvation to all people has appeared to, to us, and it teaches us. Did you realize this morning that grace is a teacher? That it is a that it is something that shapes us, that it is a transformer, that it transforms our lives because it teaches us to deny all ungodliness and to live righteously in this present age. 
So sometimes people think that if they want to be better, they need to try harder to follow rules. But I always tell people, don't follow rules, follow Jesus. Trust Him to do what you could never do. Trust Him to shape you. Trust Him to lead you in a new way of living. And so in this letter, Paul writes to Philemon, and he, he appeals to him on the basis of the freedom he enjoys in Christ. And part of that freedom, part of what we get to do as believers that the world struggles to do is to forgive, is to hold no grudges, is to not walk in bitterness, is to trust God and let go. Come on, how many of you need some of that this morning? If we were honest, all of our hands would be up. Come on, we, we all need that. We all need to let go. We, we've all struggled at one point or another to forgive someone. Chances are that all of us have been betrayed, have been let down, have been disappointed, have been hurt, sometimes deeply so. And the worst of it is when there is a genuine sense of injustice. A genuine sense of injustice. I mean, even when we're watching movies and there's somebody who does something wrong in the beginning of the movie, we watch the whole thing to watch justice be done. And if justice is not done and the person who was cast as the villain in the beginning doesn't meet his end by the end of the movie, we dislike the movie greatly. The injustice of it all. And so often we seek justice in this world. Somebody once told me there's no justice in the system. There's no justice in the system of this world. People are wronged and sometimes the retribution isn't met. And so many times when, when we're wronged, we conveniently forget this when we're the ones who wrong others, which is really the definition of a Pharisee is somebody who monitors the sins of others while wanting grace for their own. And so, so many times when, when we're wronged, however, we, we have to, in order to make ourselves feel better, we have to believe that retribution is going to come to them. We have to believe that, that God's going to get them or that they're going to be punished somehow. This is, this is actually the justice. It's a deep inner cry that we have for justice. C.S. Lewis once said that everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. We'd all say, is, is, do you guys agree that forgiveness is good? Oh, yes. Yes, pastor. Forgiveness. We believe in it until you're wronged. And then we find it so difficult to actually forgive, to actually let others be, receive the grace that God has enabled us to show them. It's ironic that the same people who say that they can't believe in a God who would punish people for their sins are the same people, the first people who are to cry out for justice when they've been sinned against. It's ironic that we want to execute the justice we sometimes don't want to allow God to execute. We want retribution. And, you know, it's, it's just not always, um, although in our world today, people are just calling it out and saying, let's, let's cancel them, let's, let's, you know, execute justice on them, let's punish them openly and publicly. People aren't even afraid of saying that anymore, but, but in times gone by, people have felt that they needed to dress up justice in a way that made it a little bit more palatable or seem a little bit less harsh when, when uh, we express our desire for it. And so they would dress it up in something like uh, some philosophy uh, like karma. 
You know, we don't believe it in karma here at Anchor Church. We believe there's something greater than karma. A karma is the idea that if you do something good, then good will come to you. And if you do something bad, then bad will come to you. My argument is always, if you're doing something good just because you want something good, is that not selfish? In other words, it's actually bad. But that's getting too deep philosophically. The point is, this is how we and people of this world, I, I saw somebody literally yesterday say, I'm a big believer in karma. You know how you could rephrase that? I believe that if you're going to do something wrong to me, you're going to get it. I believe that if you wrong me in some way or you've act out irresponsibly in some way towards others, then I'm going to enjoy watching you eat the fruit of what you've done. Sometimes Christians aren't very different from that, are we? Have you ever seen somebody struggle or go through hardship and go, yeah, it's because they don't come to church. It's because they don't do what they're supposed to do. You know, if they, if they were tithing, they would not have lost that money. That deal would not have gone south. You know, if they, if, they had been, if they had submitted that, then this would not have happened. And yes, there are consequences to us walking outside of God's will, no doubt. But the spirit that we have as believers is a different spirit from the spirit of this world. And if you've made this mistake, I know I have. I genuinely, I often want, you know, uh, not often, I mean, often, not all the time, but there are many times that I want people to get what's coming to them. Come on. I was hoping it would be Ireland yesterday, but I'll have to wait a little longer. But you know, it's not the spirit that we're of. And there was actually a time in the Bible, if you've ever felt that way, do you know that even the disciples who walked with Jesus sometimes felt that way? Peter, for example, was on a journey with Jesus, and Jesus sends him ahead. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're literally going to go and die. Uh, well, not them, but, 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 uh, but Jesus is going to go and die for the sins of the whole world. This is a really important mission. The Bible says Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And so he sends people ahead. He's hungry and wants Peter to go and prepare a place to stay in Samaria and, uh, and, and, and get some food together for Jesus. And Peter goes into Samaria, and when they find out that these are Jewish people heading on their way to, to Jerusalem, the Samaritans had an issue with the Jews, and so they said, no, that you can't stay here, and we're not going to give you any food. And this makes Peter angry. He's like, do you know who Jesus, do you know what he's done? For, do you know how many people he's fed and you won't feed him? And the injustice of it, Peter goes up to Jesus, and I love this. This is so Peter. He says, Jesus Shall we call down fire from heaven and burn them all? Literally a dracarus on the people of Samaria. Let's just destroy them all. There was a little bit of uh, biblical context for that with uh, the people that wanted to come up against Elijah in the Old Testament. And he called down fire from the sky. I mean, there's, there's some wild things in the Bible. And Peter's like, this is, today is that day. I've had enough. Today we burn them all. But the Bible says that, that Jesus turns to Peter and he says, you know not the spirit that you are of. You just haven't recognized yet who we are. We're not those kinds of people. He says, for the Son of Man came to save people's lives, not to destroy them. He came to save lives. But Jesus, what they did was unjust. It was wrong. Yes, but we came to save them. We came to save sinners. We came to heal the sick. We came to love those that are wrong and that do wrong, not to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. 
Jesus messes up this whole idea. The idea of seeking retribution and executing justice in our own strength. He messes it up. Even in his own life, we see this. When Jesus was brought before Herod, Herod was excited to see Jesus because he'd heard him do many things. And to Herod, this was like an exciting thing. And literally, the Bible says Herod was hoping he would do some miracle. I want to see what Jesus does. I've heard all these things. And he comes and Herod makes all these charges against him and says certain things to him. And the Bible says that Jesus remained silent. And then it says that there were Pharisees and, and leaders in, of the Sanhedrin and, and the scribes there. And they started making accusations against Jesus. And Jesus has the perfect moment to do something cool. I don't know how many of us would have been able to resist the opportunity to go, okay, everybody, if you want to say those things, stand back. Let me show you something. But Jesus, he came to save people, not to justify himself. And so he, he just keeps silent. Eventually, it says that even the soldiers were treating him harshly and mocking him. And when he stood before Pontius Pilate and they were, they were again making accusations against him, Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, do you hear the charges made against you? And Jesus says, nothing. Just remain silent. I remember a time in ministry, if you've been in ministry for five minutes, somebody said something about you. And I remember a time when a lot of people were saying things about me. And a lot of, it was a, a time when there was uh, falsehoods being said about me. And, and, and I had such an urge to set the record straight. But God spoke to me in that moment. And I remember tweeting out at that time. I was a little bit more active on Twitter. And, uh, and I remember tweeting out and saying, what people have to say about me is none of my business. Whatever you may have heard is wrong with me. The truth is, there's probably a lot more wrong than what you've heard. So that's okay. I'm not here to defend myself or justify myself or, or try and change everybody's opinion about me. I'm just here to serve Jesus. And I may do that imperfectly sometimes, but I'm just going to keep doing what God wants me to do and trusting that in the process, He's going to help me become more and more mature in Him. It just takes the sting out of what people have to say. Because it's so hard not to be offended when people have said something about you that you know isn't true. It's so hard not to want to set the record straight, but, but Jesus does not defend himself. Instead, he goes up onto the, the mountain and he begins to share a message. And a part of that message, he talks about how we treat those that have done bad things to us or that have harmed us. And he says this in, in Luke 27 to verse 31. This is a, a sermon by Jesus. Literally, if we had him here today, this might well be something that, I mean, when, when I say he is obviously here today, but physically as the guest speaker, and we all sat down there, he would say something along these lines, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. If they've robbed you, offer up some more. Give them some extra. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Wow. Wow. 
You know, sometimes we've got to do that. We've all been wronged. I've got a long story that most of the staff know about the ordeal I've been through uh, with my car. I had a, a, my car parked at Four Ways Mall. Uh, one afternoon, got there, and a lady had accidentally driven into the front of my car. She says, um, the tires slipped. I don't know if she was drifting in the parking lot or what happened, but, but she drove in. Just a little bit of damage on the front of the car, not too bad. So I took it in, and taking it in, I just asked them to, to fix the damage on the front, and then there were a few spots on the side of the car that I asked them to repair. Came back. They had completely resprayed the entire car and botched the whole thing. So I gave them a second opportunity to fix it. It wasn't fixed. It came back worse. I gave them another opportunity after the CEO of the company, the founder of the company, phoned me. And he gave me a long story. And I know now that he was playing me a story about how he goes to church and he gives to the poor. And he, you know, and, and, and I'm a pastor, so I'm like, man, let me pray for you. He had some health issues. I prayed with him in my driveway. And he said, I promise you, I do work for all these other companies. I'm going to take your car. I'm personally going to respray it. Got back, the car was worse than ever. Plus, it now weighed 200 kilograms more. <laughs> five layers of paint on it. And, um, and when I told him that, and I said to him, the paint is worse, he just turned and said, well, that's your problem now. And so, what do you do? There's so many things you can do. And at the time, unfortunately for my own flesh, we were preaching through 1 Corinthians. And we had just dealt with the part that says, is it not, is it not a, a dishonor to you to take your brother to court? Is it not a dishonor to you that if you are the ones who in the future, in the reign of Christ, will be the judges of the world, that you cannot judge a matter amongst yourselves? And so there was the opportunity for me to take them to court and to, to recover. The, the, they did an assessment on the car. It's a write-off in essence. The, um, the, the value of redoing the paint is more than the value of the car. So I've lost, I've lost all the money, all the equity that would have been in that vehicle. And I just thought, you know, Paul says this, is it not better that you suffer wrong? Is it not better, to, well, you know, if God's the one who takes care of you, can you just let things go? I'm not that, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm not that guy that lets things go. I will make you pay. But God spoke to me. And so I just sent him a voice note, more like a sermon. <laughs> but like Pastor Mark shared a while back, I think it was Matthew Henry said, I'm so glad that I'm the one who was robbed rather than the one who was robbing others. There's so much more to life than just getting your own back. These are tough moments for us because we believe in justice. We believe in right and wrong. We believe that there are some things that just aren't right. But God also says that as believers, we have the opportunity to lay down our rights, just like Jesus laid down his rights, and to walk at a higher level of life, a higher level of love. That's what God has for us as believers. And so Jesus carries on there in, in verse 35 to 36. He says, and as you wish others would do to you, do so also to them, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. 
and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind. This is Jesus, who is one with the Father, talking about who God is. People have lots of different definitions for God. This is definitive. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That very sentence doesn't sit well with us, does it? God, why are you being kind to the evil? But Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Wow. That's a challenging word for us this morning, isn't it? Look at God. He is kind to the ungrateful. That's why, that's why God is kind to us. How many times are we the ungrateful? How many times have we been the evil? How many times have we done what is wrong? You see, karma can only advocate for self-serving restraint. I'm not going to do evil because I want good to come. But in the midst of it, we hope that justice will somehow come by some other way. That the universe will in some way execute justice. We're actually still executing justice or, or judging in our hearts and in our minds. We're just hoping someone else will do it. But grace gives freely and respects nothing in return. It does not have to be rewarded. If Jesus, it's Jesus dying on the cross, looking at the people that have just nailed him there with love in his eyes, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Lord. That's what it looks like. And we wrestle with that. And I'd say we wrestle with it far more deeply and consistently than we care to even admit. Not only in forgiving others that have wronged us, but actually in forgiving ourselves. You know, sometimes we're harsh on others because we haven't forgiven ourselves. If I'm punishing myself for my sins, I'm definitely going to punish you as well. We sometimes cannot even worship when we stand here on a Sunday morning because we're so overwhelmed by our own personal sense of failure and guilt. The condemnation that we carry as the result of mistakes that we have made. We're unable sometimes to forgive ourselves. And it's because we feel like there's some justice that needs to be done towards us. Especially when we know that we're wrong. We feel like if God could just get it over with and punish us, then we can get past this because now we've, we've, we've eaten the fruit of our sin and so now we can go on. But when you say there's grace and I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did, it's like that, it feels too easy sometimes. So we start blending and getting a mix of like grace and punishment. Grace and the law. Grace plus law equals law. Doesn't equal anything different. So we want to be punished. Robert Capon says, God, punish us for our sins. Make us pay. As long as you spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate grace. Sometimes we feel it would be more dignified if we just paid the price for our own sin. How many of you have had something bad happen to you at some point in your life and thought, yep, this is right. I deserve this. I deserve this because I shouldn't have done that and now I'm paying for that and it's the right thing. We almost make ourselves feel, we comfort ourselves by the fact that we deserve it. And so we, we wrestle with grace. As much as we 
kick against and rebel against the law and rules and regulations. We rage against grace all the more. Because what it is, is it's death to self. It says, you're not good because of you. You're good because of him. You're not saved because you did something right. You're saved because you were forgiven. Jesus didn't come to make, take bad people and make them good. He came to take dead people and make them alive. So it's all in him, which means that there's nothing that we can stand in front of God and say, God, I did such a great job. What's my blessing? No, the flesh will never boast in the presence of God. When we get there, we will know, God, the only reason I'm here is because of your kindness. So it's death to self. We rebel against that. We kick against it. It's so hard for us to receive. But when you start receiving it, you begin to understand that you have been empowered to live a life that looks different and you can put a demand on the grace of God to live differently. So Paul only needs to write one page. He only needs 335 words because in essence, what he writes to Philemon is to say, I know that you're a changed man. I've heard about your faith. And because you are a changed man, I know that God is causing you to mature in him. And as somebody who is matured, I know that you're gonna forgive. So forgive, and I trust you'll do even more. And Paul drops the quill, walks out, remembers he's in prison, turns around, sits down. That's all he needed to say. The background to this one-page letter of Paul is simple. There was this wealthy man, Philemon, who uh, became a believer, hosted this church in Colossae, which is quite a distance away uh, from Rome. And as was common in that day, Philemon owned at least one slave, one bond servant that, that worked for him. And at one point, Philemon's slave, who was a, a man by the name of Onesimus, he runs away. If you're plotting to escape, if you're plotting to run away, it would be wise for you to, to steal some stuff so that you can buy some food and get some new clothes and do what you need to do on your search for freedom. And so uh, we, we assume that, that he robbed from, uh, from Philemon and then runs away looking for freedom. And then in running away, how poetic is this? He runs hundreds of miles all the way to Rome and who does he run into? the Apostle Paul. What are the chances? Also, I think it, he would have, I can just imagine how he felt when he found out that the Apostle Paul also was friends with the guy he ran away from. Like, come on. There's so many people in Rome. I bump into this guy who knows where I came from. How many times do we try and run away from our past? How many times do we go in search of freedom only to find out that it's something that when you're trying to do it in your own strength, you just can never really escape from. And he bumps into Paul and in this divine moment in looking for freedom from slavery, he finds a greater freedom than he ever could have expected. Not just freedom from physical slavery, but freedom from the slavery to sin and death. Paul, in this beautiful moment, leads this runaway slave to the Lord. 
You're a slave to sin no more. You've been delivered from the power and the grip of sin in your life. You've been delivered from death. You've received eternal life. So even you, Onesimus, can live differently now. In Romans 6, 16 to 18, Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, and I love this, this is what I was talking about earlier. This is where it's not obedience as following a rule or a law, but obedience as the effect of God's love in your life. You have become obedient from the heart. That's the kind of obedience that God wants. He says, these people, they honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. God doesn't want religious obedience. Obedience under some form of compulsion, Obedience under the, the threat of punishment. God wants obedience from the heart. God, Paul writes to the Romans, he says, God has forgiven you. And thereby you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're able to follow in the ways of God and follow Jesus from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. You heard something and it changed you. And that very thing that changed you is gonna keep changing you. And having been set free from sin, you have now become slaves of righteousness. He's in essence saying, we're gonna be a slave of something. You're gonna worship something. You're gonna follow something. You're gonna obey something. Either it's your own flesh and sinfulness and your, your evil desires that's gonna to lead to destruction in your life, or God's gonna do something great. He's actually gonna connect you to his heart so powerfully that even when you wanna run away, even when you wanna go in a different direction, his love is gonna constantly bring you back into what is best for your life. It's such a hopeful thing to be a slave of righteousness because many times I want to be a runaway slave and it's the love of God that brings me home, that brings me back to him. So this is really a heart issue. And God says, you're no longer gonna be slave to sins because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So you can choose a different path. And Paul sits with Onesimus who has now been saved, has become a believer and actually becomes one of his associates, one of his apprentices uh, that, that, that is preaching alongside him. Anisimus has become a powerful minister under Paul. And they sit down at one point, and I can imagine the conversation going something like this, where Paul, knowing God's heart for Anisimus, knowing God, the, the opportunity that Anisimus has to make a great testimony out of his life, he says to Paul, what shall we do with our freedom? What's the right thing to do? Can we face the past? Can we go back? Can we do something different to what the world has done or would do? What would it look like to be a believer in this situation? And as they sit there, they come to the, the conclusion that the best thing would be for Onesimus to go back to Philemon, to go back to that place where he was previously enslaved. You see, the world would just fire back at anyone that has ever harmed us. 
The world wants to make people pay. The world hopes that karma would get them. But the weight of freedom is that with freedom comes the necessity to choose. This is like when I ask my wife what she wants to eat at a restaurant. There's too many options. There's a bur the burden of freedom. And sometimes she'll say, will you just choose for me? And I've learned, I'll just order for her whatever I ordered for me because inevitably if she orders something different, she'll wanna eat what I'm eating. And she'll say, I should have ordered what you ordered. And I said, I know. We do this every time. But we could, we could take that choice and it would be wrong for us, every single one of us in this room today, to have the freedom from sin, the freedom from the ways of the world, the freedom from bitterness, and then to choose bitterness. To actually, so when you're walking in unforgiveness, you're not a victim of that unforgiveness. You're choosing it. Because you had the choice to choose something different. You still do. You could make a choice today to leave whatever hurt you're carrying right here in this room to walk out without it. Jesus has made that available to you. When you walk in bitterness, you've chosen bitterness. And that is a far heavier form of slavery than anything else you can encounter in this world. When you're truly free, you'll do the opposite of what people expect. Even that, like, is Anisimus really gonna go back to his former master? That's not how we would write the story. You know, 12 years a slave, go play a violin, Anisimus. You know, be a musician. Don't go back. The world does things differently. The opposite. We bless instead of curse. We give instead of take. We offer up more after we have been robbed. Why? Because we're free. We're free. So Paul sends Anisimus back, and before he goes, he writes him a one-page letter. If I was Anisimus, I can tell you, I'd be like, Paul, don't you want to, you know, there's a backside. You don't want to just write a little bit more. Can we just make sure that the message comes across? What Paul wrote in that letter was so defining that it, it redefined Christian love and forgiveness to such an extent that it completely undermined the concept of slavery in our world, even physical slavery. It was the basis for the abolishment of slavery. William Wilberforce, who eventually fought against slavery in the 1800s as a, as a politician and a Christian, the founder of the Bible Society, stood on this letter, showing that all people are created equal in God and this is not how God wants us to treat each other. How do you know? I've got 335 words to show you. It's Christians who ended slavery, a practice that existed in the world for thousands of years before. As long as people have been around, slaves have been kept. And it ended with Christians who said, but Paul wrote this really punchy letter. Here's the letter. Philemon 1 verse 1. There's only one, one chapter, so. 1 verse 1 to 7, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apaphia, Ar Ar Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, the first thing that we can see here is that Philemon is clearly a kingdom builder. He's a wealthy man who refreshes the saints, who gives towards the church, who builds the kingdom alongside Paul and other believers because he loves Jesus and he loves people. But there's a sentence there that can be so easy for us to skip over that's actually so incredible. Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. You're saying, I have no idea what that means, Pastor. In essence, what Paul is saying is that when you come to that full knowledge of Christ, when you start to mature in your faith, you'll start living out all the good things that are already in us through Christ. See, when the moment you got saved, God filled you with every good thing, every spiritual gift in the heavenlies, every bit that you will ever need, your ministry, your calling, your living, your righteousness, it is in you because God's grace is on you. And as we mature in faith, rather than obeying the flesh and following after it like the world does, we get to see the good things that God put in us come to fruition. It changes the way we live. We start living differently. So Paul writes to, to Philemon. He says, man, I've heard of your faith. And guess what your faith is going to do? It's going to change you. It's going to change your actions. It's going to change the way that you treat people. Because he's about to tell him that Onesimus is with him. In Philemon 1 verse 8 to 9, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. I'm bold enough to tell you, listen, just do it. This is what God wants us to do. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Even for me here on a, on a Sunday morning, I'm not here to command you, tell you what you have to do. I'm not here to threaten you. No, I'm appealing to you. You are a believer, aren't you? God's work is happening within you, is it not? The Holy Spirit is transforming you as you behold Jesus with unveiled face, being transformed from glory to glory into His image, are you not? We're believers, aren't we? So I appeal to you, let's be different. Let's live differently. Let's forgive differently. Let's give differently. Because we are different. When we grow in Christ, His love compels us. Commands wish that they had the power to move people the way that love does. You know, sometimes I do some things for my kids that I really don't have to do, honestly. I make so much work for myself. And sometimes my wife will say to me, you don't have to do that for them. And I'm like, I can't help myself. I love them. Sometimes I wish I loved them a little less. It would be so much easier. But when you love somebody, you are compelled 
to act on their behalf. The law could only dream of bringing about the kind of righteousness that grace can. So Paul gets into the meat of his letter, what he really wanted to say from verse 10. He says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appealed to you for my child. I love him. Anisimus is my son in the Lord. I led him to Jesus. He's my disciple. I love this man. Anisimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending, sending my very heart. My very heart. Imagine what kind of disciples we would make if we felt that way about people. If we had that heart for people. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. There it is again. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Come on, make me proud, man. I led you to Jesus. Show me how real your faith is. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. He's saying to Philemon, hey, Philemon, I need you to forgive. I need you to forgive this man because God has forgiven him. And if God has forgiven him, why would you not forgive him? If he has wronged you, I'll repay it. Put it on my account, Paul says. And there's something that, that we miss here so easily. Paul appeals to Philemon's own accord, his own will, what's happening in his own heart. Because he believes that Philemon is becoming more and more like Jesus. So he says, I can, I can appeal to you because I know that God is doing this work inside of you as you're maturing. And then what Paul does is that he reveals how now being an old man, now having served the Lord for many years, he has become so much like Jesus that he starts acting like Jesus for, on, and on behalf of Onesimus. He says, hey, he's my son and I love him. Just like Jesus loved us. He says, if, if he's done anything to wrong you, put it on my account. Who else did that for Paul? Jesus did it for Paul. Jesus took Paul's sin and put it on his account. So Paul says, I'm becoming like my father. I'll put his sin on my account. Charge it to my account. I'll repay it. I'm writing this with my own hand. 
Paul reveals what Jesus has done in his life. And we see this glimpse of it here. The first thing we see is that people aren't just on your heart. They are your heart. The more you become like Jesus, you just don't think, you don't just think about people. People are your heart. He's my very heart. Secondly, you no longer desire retribution, but you desire to show grace and to encourage others in grace as well. And number three, you're willing to give yourself up for others the way that Jesus gave himself up for us. Receive him as you would receive me. What did Jesus say? As much as you do it for the least of these, my brothers, you're doing it for me. Honor each other in reverence to Christ. That's exactly what Jesus did for Paul. And now Paul is becoming like his father, doing it for Onesimus. I want to end with this parable that Jesus spoke when Peter asked him the question, how many times, Jesus, are we supposed to forgive? Like how many, just what's the limit? This is still Peter going, I still wanted to call the fire down. I mean, I, I just, can we go back? They keep doing it. They keep wronging me. How many times do I forgive? Now, obviously it goes without saying that God also calls us to wisdom and it doesn't mean that you have to stay in an abusive relationship and just constantly forgive. But whether you stay in a relationship that's abusive or not, forgiveness is always the right thing to do. How many times should I forgive Jesus? Jesus answers Peter in Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I love that that's the standard. Seven is a lot, Jesus. The eighth time, I'm gonna deck him because this is enough now. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, don't go work that out on a calculator and say, right, I know the number now is 490. Because that's not what Jesus was saying. He said, you just, whatever you think, however many times, just keep forgiving. You know, forgiveness is not always just something you do one time. Many times forgiveness requires consistent commitment in order to truly forgive. Sometimes when you have found out that somebody has wronged you, and you take a quick move, which is the right thing to do, to just forgive them in that moment, you're going to be angry a little bit later again. And guess what you're going to have to do? Forgive them again. Don't come to me and say, no, but pastor, I've forgiven them. I'll say to you, keep forgiving them. Every time that hurt comes up in your heart, every time you think about how wrong it was, every time the injustice surfaces again, go, okay, I forgive them again, Lord. I release them in Jesus' name. And I pray for them. I pray, God, that you'll save them, that you'll reach them. Jesus, to make the point clear, says to Peter, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's more than you'll pay back in a lifetime. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. There's that slavery concept again. Slavery to sin. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, out of compassion, out of grace, the master of that servant released him and forgave him this great debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 
a small amount, a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. It's almost like Jesus put that in there just to show the spirit and how ugly the spirit of unforgiveness is. He's just been forgiven, but he's but clearly the forgiveness hasn't had its effect in his life because now he's choking someone out that owes him a very small amount. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in the prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should, and, uh, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart not religiously but genuinely and what Jesus is saying here is simple if the grace of God that has forgiven you is not enough to change your heart towards those that have wronged you then the grace of God has never truly then you've never truly allowed the grace of God in your life You've never received it by faith. You've never become grateful for your salvation. In many ways, you were never saved. Even though God made the offer of salvation, you didn't allow it to change you. You didn't, allow, you didn't believe in it. Your faith isn't worth much. So this morning, who do you need to forgive? What have you been holding on to maybe for years we're not justifying anything that was done towards you or against you that was wrong. We're saddened when our people or any people are wronged. The injustice kills us. It's, it's hard to live with. But God forgave us our sins. And if that faith is worth its salt, it would empower us to forgive others also. And when you do that, you will find that the people that you have accidentally chained yourself to in unforgiveness and bitterness, you are now going to be liberated from. You're the one who is going to be set free. You're the one who is going to be set free.